Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. We'll continue to share in the reading of Scripture by turning our attention to the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 21. The words are on the screen or in your bulletin, or you may have your own Bible or your phone or something of that nature. I invite you to follow along as we hear these words. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing in our eyes, and it is, this is the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We join me in a spirit of prayer. Yes, God, we gather today with gratitude in our hearts. Another week passed. You have seen us through, sustained us, brought us forth again to this holy hour to hear words of affirmation and hope, to hear stories of your love and care. May it be so today as we sing and fellowship, as we make our gifts and offerings, as we focus on these ancient words of Scripture, that your Spirit would be among us, within us, working alongside of us, lifting us up in your presence, healing us, forgiving us, and making us whole. We pray now that you would speak through this moment, in this time, through my words, despite my words, that these, your people, would hear a word from you today. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you are familiar with this image, then you know here in Arkansas we will soon be approaching persimmon season. Are you familiar with persimmons, most of you? They grow a wild and they're kind of a natural fruit here in this part of the state, this part of the region. Their, their Latin name is Diasporus virginiana, Diasporus virginiana, which is Latin for food of the gods. Doesn't that sound nice? Let me warn you, okay? They don't necessarily taste like food for the gods. Persimmons ripen at the very end of fall, the very very beginning of winter. They have a very short window where they taste decent. You can make fruits or jams out of them. You can eat them raw. But if you eat them early, they have what we call the pucker factor. They will make your mouth turn inside out. You will spit and cough and moan and groan. I remember the first time that trick was pulled on me. My dad set me up so good. We were on the family farm. There's a few wild persimmon trees. It was late in the fall, maybe uh, late October, and 
And he picked one up, and, or maybe plucked it, and he, and he ate it with a big smile on his face. He said, oh, these persimmons are so good. You've got to try one, right? And I was eight or nine or ten, and so I did the same, wiped it off, took a big bite. Oh, and I just remember convulsing, right? They are so tart. They have so much acid in them. They will just turn your mouth inside out. Similarly, we had on the farm, on the backyard there, there was a crabapple tree. Uh, Crabapples are kind of like persimmons. They're a little bit tricky. They look like apples, um, but they don't taste like apples, right? They're very sour, very bitter. Um, We were taught the best thing to do with the crabapples was just to throw them over the fence uh, for the cows and for the horses, uh, which is what we did. We treated them like baseballs and just chunked them as far as we could into the yard. As you heard Sarah mention, of course, we're in the middle of harvest season here in northeast Arkansas and in many parts of the country. It's an exciting time. I know our farmers are working hard, uh, long hours, and we certainly give thanks for them. Uh, you see the cars and trucks. You see all the activity in the fields around us. I think most of the, most of the corn is, is gone by now, and, and there's still some cotton that's being picked and baled, and some beans and whatnot. If you appreciate the sour persimmon or the crab apple, or if you just have some familiarity with the harvest season that's going on around us, uh, then you can get a sense of the scene today in Isaiah 5. I want to do a little bit of kind of Bible teaching today. I love these two texts, Isaiah 5 and Matthew 21, and and you probably already heard in the reading how closely they are tied together, right? So I might invite you to kind of keep your bulletin open, keep your, your Bible open as we walk through them and see what Isaiah is doing in his text and then how Jesus takes that same image and sort of reorients it in the New Testament. In Isaiah 5, as you heard Jessica read just a minute ago, uh, the text starts with Isaiah being a prophet, voicing the words of God, and the words of God in this case are um, directed toward my beloved, right? And so this begins kind of like a romantic story, right? It's a love story. It's about the romantic relationship, in this case, the relationship between God and Judah, and so as you heard Jessica reading, this is a, my beloved. This is a song about my beloved, what's happened to my beloved. So that's, that's the first metaphor is just the relationship of love between God and Judah. But then Isaiah takes it even further. So now it's the relationship about the beloved and through the lens of a, a vineyard. Right? And so in this metaphor that Isaiah offers, uh, the farmer has, has gone to great lengths uh, to, plant, to plant a vineyard. Right? It says that he's gotten all of the stones out of it. He's chose the best vines. Uh, the soil is in good shape. Uh, he's put a watchtower in it, so there's someone watching over the vineyard, protecting it. There's a wine vat in it. Everything is set up perfectly. Right? This is the relationship between God and Judah, between God and Israel. This is the relationship between the, the farmer and the vineyard. Everything is set up perfectly. The farmer has done everything in his power to prepare this vineyard to succeed. But... While he expected grapes, instead the farm has yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes. Now that translation doesn't necessarily resonate with us in a big way, but, but the word there, wild, means like, like useless or rotten, right? While the farmer has done everything under his power to prepare the vineyard to produce grapes, good grapes, instead the vineyard has produced rotten grapes, useless grapes. And so Isaiah goes on and says, this is the relationship between God and Judah. God has done everything God could to prepare Judah for a successful and fruitful and healthy future. And yet, the fruit is rotten. It's nasty. It's no good. It's useless. And so Isaiah says that God has decided to let this vineyard be devoured and destroyed. So he's going to tear down the walls that protect it. We're going to allow the briars to come in. There will not be any rain 
all of the effort that the farmer has put in has, is now going to sort of be reversed. And the vineyard will be destroyed. In Isaiah 5, we think the early parts of Isaiah probably date to like the 8th century. In the 8th century, the northern kingdom has already been destroyed by Assyria. So now we're just talking about the southern kingdom and Judah. We're not quite ready to get to the exile. The exile doesn't come for a couple hundred more years. But you can already hear in Isaiah's words, in the prophet's vision, that because of Israel's failures, because of Judah's failures, destruction is on the horizon. Destruction's on the horizon. That Israel has not lived into its relationship with God like it should have, and its future is, is going to be one of disaster. And so here we've got a picture of kind of a, a vineyard that's, that's gone astray. That, that's the, the vision that Isaiah is offering here in chapter 5. It's a, a vineyard that was well prepared but instead has, has gone bad. Like biting into a nasty persimmon or a crab apple or losing an entire yield of your harvest, everything has fallen apart. We know this pattern is somewhat cyclical in the Old Testament. The people will be drawn to God in this covenant relationship. God is their overlord. God cares for them. Yahweh provides for them, protects them. But as Israel gains some, some power and some independence, they often go their own way. They do harm to one another. They worship idols. As they are led astray, they often fall, and then they find again that they need God, and they return to God. And so we see this pattern throughout the Old Testament, and this is one of those points where Israel is coming to the realization that it has not lived into its covenant with God. Specifically, though, I want you to note the, the final few verses there. It says that as God looked down on Judah, God was expecting worship and celebration, but instead heard cries. God was expecting righteousness, but instead found bloodshed. So what's unique about the Isaiah reading this morning is that the judgment, the word of judgment that's coming through Isaiah's vision, is really for the people in leadership in Israel. I want you to hear that really clearly. The judgment this morning is for the people who are in leadership in Israel. Again, this is a theme in the Old Testament. The kings or the judges or the priests, they often rise to power. Sometimes they have good intentions. Sometimes they're faithful. But usually that power goes to their head. And when that power goes to their head, they end up doing harm to the community of faith. They imprison their own people. They turn their own people into slaves. They harm their own people. That seems to be what's happening here in Isaiah. That those who are in power, those who have authority, are doing harm to the community. They're hurting other Israelites. They're hurting those in the family of God. Instead of righteousness, Israel is experiencing bloodshed. And so God sort of concludes that despite God being faithful, despite the covenant relationship that's there, Israel has chosen a different path. Israel is reaping what it's sowing. Israel is sowing violence and chaos, and that's what it's going to reap over the next couple of centuries as it's eventually destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and the people are taken in to exile. It's a failure of leadership that has gotten Israel into this situation. Now, I was looking for some sort of modern way to, to offer a, an example, an image of what's going on uh, in Israel. Uh, this might be helpful to you. I recently read a book recommended by a friend titled Red Notice, written by Bill Browder. Uh, it's a fascinating book. I recommend it to you. He's an interesting guy from a, a very peculiar family. They have an interesting background. Many of his, his elders are, are mathematicians, which I like, right, people who are into math. Uh, they teach at top colleges and universities here in the country. He, too, is very bright, but he kind of rebels against the family and goes his own way. He becomes a venture capitalist. He ends up in Eastern Europe trying to invest in new markets and finally in Russia. 
And so Red Notice is the story of his life, how he ends up in Russia, how he ends up in this uh, capitalist game there as the economy is changing to a private economy and outside investors are allowed to enter in for the first time. I can't unpack the whole story. It's very long and complicated. And again, I encourage you to read it. But, but part of what the story does uh, is it highlights the way in which the economy moved from a, a communist economy to a capitalist economy, and yet it was still controlled by very few people. Right? You've often heard about the Russian oligarchs. And so in Browder's case, he's entering as a Western capitalist trying to invest and grow his own funds, his own company, but he's at odds with these Russian oligarchs who control a, a large part of the economy there in Russia. Not only control it, uh, but manipulate it, they engineer elections, uh, they bribe folks, they run the court systems. I mean, the book is an incredibly detailed account of the brokenness of this sort of modern country and the way in which a few people with power can control and manipulate an entire nation, right? And so as you read the book, you just get a real inside look. The first time I had read something like this, a real inside look at the, the nasty players and the way in which they prop themselves up, the way in which they, they harm other people to the point of violence and even murder. This is a contemporary setting, right? Not to suggest that Israel and Russia are one and the same. Certainly they are not. But if you can have this vision of sort of the Russian oligarchs, a few powerful men who control the economy, control the country, even to the point of violence, that's a little bit what's happening in the Old Testament. That there are a few people who have control and power and they want to maintain control and power and economic advantage, even if it harms other people. Right? That's what's happening in Israel. And so you can imagine God's frustration. Right? That's part of the the kind of interesting part about this parable is we get God in very human terms. We hear about God's anger and God's disappointment. God is a, God is a, a beloved, a lover who's been, who's been disappointed in a failed relationship. God is a, a farmer who has gone out of his way to do everything possible to set up Israel for success, and still yet Israel has chosen a different path. I like these parables that make God very, very human, right? It's easy to relate to this God who, who's experiencing disappointment and pain. Like, even when we do our best, even when we do all of our homework and do all of our preparation, even when we do everything we can in our power, sometimes things still don't work out like we had hoped. And we have to confess, we have to kind of let go, we have to relent that the other parties involved, it's just not the relationship we had imagined. That's kind of what's happening here in Isaiah with God and Judah. Now, if we flip to the New Testament, I hope you heard real clearly the way in which Jesus in Matthew 21 is picking up on the themes from Isaiah. In fact, some people, um, there's, a, there's sort of a saying that Isaiah is the fifth gospel because Isaiah is quoted so much and used so much in the New Testament gospels. Some people say that Isaiah is Jesus' favorite book of the Old Testament because Jesus is constantly quoting and referring to Isaiah. So notice how Jesus' parable in Matthew 21 sets up the same way as Isaiah's parable in Isaiah 5. Jesus said there was a landowner with a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. All right, so that's the same setting as Isaiah 5. And so surely those hearers in Jesus' day and even us today can recognize that Jesus is connecting the two stories. But Jesus' parable goes in a little bit different direction. In this case, the landowner has sent tenants to take care of the property, and so they're caring for the property, caring for the vineyard, collecting the produce, and presumably passing the profits back along to the landowner. The landowner sends his slaves or his servants, uh, kind of a weird word there, but servants, he sends those who work for him to check on the tenants and to check on the farm. And what happens when they come? 
they're put to death. Right? It's kind of a violent scene. Right? It says they beat one, they stoned one, they killed another one. And so the tenants are essentially trying to sort of overthrow the landowner. They're going to take over the farm for themselves. They're not going to deal with the landowner anymore. And then the landowner says, well, surely if I send my son, then they'll respect me. And the tenants say, son, this is great. We can kill him too, and then we'll get his inheritance. So that's what they do. Jesus takes Isaiah's parable that's about the work that God has done to prepare the vineyard and the way in which Israel's leaders have failed to live into that vision and that hope. Jesus takes Isaiah's parable and sort of ups the ante. Notice how in Jesus' parable, it's not just that the leaders of Israel have failed to capture the covenant relationship with God as they should, but in Jesus' parable, they have put to death the the slaves and servants of the master. In other words, those who came on behalf of the landover to to speak a word, to check in on the farm, they have have refused to listen to them. Here Jesus is alluding to the prophets of the Old Testament. Many people have come to, to check on the tenants, have come to check on the farm. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah and Amos. And despite how many people came to to check on the farm and to remind them of the landowner's intention, God's intentions, the people often refused to hear and, and even beat the prophets. And now we have in the Gospels, not only has Jesus sent prophets, but but God has sent his own son. Surely, if people didn't understand the covenant relationship with God before, surely they will understand the relationship in in the Son. Now, of course, this is Matthew 21. Jesus has not yet been arrested, has not yet been put to death. All of those events that come in Holy Week and on Good Friday, this is is before that. So Jesus is sort of foreshadowing through the parable. Not only do they refuse to listen to the Son, but they had him put to death. In Isaiah's case, it's, it's condemnation of Israel's leadership because they failed to live into the covenant that God had in mind. In Jesus' case, in the gospel, it's condemnation of Israel's leadership because they've refused to listen to the warnings and are now even turning against God's own son. It is a rich and challenging parable. As Jesus is teaching them, he says, Surely you've heard, surely you remember, he quotes from Psalm 118, The stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he goes on further to say that this, this land, this vineyard, will be given to new tenants. Right? They'll be given to new people, a new tribe, a new ethnicity. Those who do not necessarily inherit it within the family, but who come from other languages and other traditions. And so we see Jesus sort of nodding toward Pentecost and nodding toward the future of the church and the way in which God's future will be much wider and broader than it is with just the people of Israel. It's important, I want to offer a real strong warning and a real strong caveat that there was, a, there was a time in Christian history when we would read texts like Isaiah 5 or Matthew 21 and we would read them with a sort of judgmental lens toward Jewish people, right? Look how foolish Jewish people are. They didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't live into the covenant with God. Look how foolish Jewish people are. They, they're not recognizing or following God's son, right? That, that's, that's kind of a, a shallow and misreading of the text because that's, that's not really what it says. Isaiah nor Jesus, they don't stand in condemnation or judgment of the people of Israel. In fact, it it says in Matthew today that the crowds thought that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus seems to be well understood and respected and celebrated among the, the everyday folks. The condemnation in Isaiah and then later by Jesus is the condemnation of the religious leaders. 
It's the religious authorities who fail to hear the word of God, who fail to recognize God's Son and respond to His goodness and His work in the world. It's the religious authorities that that sort of hold the people captive and abuse them and, and use them for their own purposes. And so Jesus today is speaking to those who are in power. If we try to connect these two lessons, uh, I would suggest to you that there's, there's kind of two, two take-home points that I would hope you would remember today. The first one from the Old Testament and then from the New Testament as well, from Isaiah to Matthew, is the importance of and the challenges of poor leadership. This is the case throughout the Old Testament, and it's certainly the case in the New Testament as well. That when people come to power, when people assume authority, they often begin in humility and seeking God's word and God's care and guidance, but they end up sort of going their own way, even doing harm to others. This happens over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. And so we should hear real clearly in the words of Scripture God's high expectations, God's very serious concern around the the leaders of the community of faith. Now, what an odd thing on Pastor Appreciation Sunday, right, uh, for me to preach this word about failed leadership, right? But I want you to know that I hear that in a very humble way, right? That those of us who are leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, political leaders who want to be religious leaders, boy, we have to be careful when we end up in positions of authority because history shows us that those positions have often been abused, right? And so if we're going to be leaders, we have to do so with a real heart of humility, constantly listening and hearing for God's word. I also kind of want to extend that lesson to you. I don't, I don't want to put you in the same boat as, as Israel's failed religious leaders in the Old Testament or the chief priests in the Pharisees. You don't hold the same positions exactly. But many of you are in positions of leadership in some shape or form. Your bosses or managers, your administrators, your classroom teachers, uh, you serve on boards and advisory groups within the community, Shake being our, our town and our county. Uh, your leaders in your own household with your children, your leaders in all sorts of different ways. So I hope you hear today God's high expectations for you too. To be in a position of leadership, to have some control over a vineyard, to have some responsibility over a vineyard is a, is a high standard in God's eyes. The second thing that we, of course, pick up on, and I hope is the take-home message, is what Jesus, of course, says about himself that despite the failed leadership that's often recorded in the Old Testament and the way in which God has to intervene, despite the chief priests and the Pharisees who are unable to see Jesus as the Son of God and unable to respond to his leadership, uh, Jesus proclaims for us that, that he is the cornerstone. Now, cornerstone, right, is a visual that makes a lot of sense to us. It's the cornerstone on the building. This meant more in the ancient world when we didn't have as uh, engineering or architectural techniques that were so advanced. The cornerstone was set in place as sort of the guide and the measure for the rest of the building, right? The cornerstone had to be level and even, and from everything else, uh, you could measure and build the rest of the building. And so it is with Jesus. So it is with God. That despite our human failings, despite our shortcomings, despite our inability to hear God's words, despite the ways that we do harm to one another, uh, God remains steadfast and secure. Christ the cornerstone, as we sang earlier. 
This is the good news. These are two hard texts from Isaiah and Matthew. They're two challenging texts about the brokenness of the world and and the way in which people fail to live into God's hope. And yet there is this thread of good news that despite human failings, God, God in Christ, remains steadfast. And so I hope you leave with that today. First of all, the high expectations and the challenges around human leadership, particularly religious leadership. But also this, this good news, right? That even when leaders fail, even when we fail, even when we fail to hear God's word and respond faithfully, we should never confuse those human failings with failings of God's character. That God remains rock solid, consistent, secure, steadfast, unmoving, unshaken. The community of faith may have highs and lows, but, but God will never disappoint. And so we can cling to this hope. Christ is our cornerstone, our hope, and our future. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks that you are indeed our cornerstone. We can relate so well to the stories from Isaiah, the stories of Matthew, the way in which our faith has sometimes waxed and waned in seasons where we've been faithful, seasons when we've been unfaithful. Thank God that you have remained steadfast, that you continue to call us forth and set us on firm ground. May you give us the courage and the wisdom to live into your goodness for the sake of ourselves, for the sake of our families, our church, our community, our world. Christ, may you be our cornerstone in all things. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.